Welcome to episode 105 of the Fertility Podcast. I'm Natalie Silverman, your host, and I want to welcome you to the Fertility Podcast if this is your first listen. This is a really brief intro because as you will hear, my voice isn't great. I lost it over the weekend and I've been on vocal rest as if I've been auditioning for The X Factor, but I still don't sound great. So we're going to launch straight into this episode, which I really hope you'll find of interest. It's understanding what Kleinfelter syndrome is and how it affects you. So I'm now going to welcome Raj Baxi, who's the Vice Chair of the Trustees of the Kleinfelter Syndrome Association. He also coordinates the Facebook group, and we're going to talk more about the KSA, what it does and how it can help you. So Raj, first of all, welcome to the Fertility Podcast. Thank you very much. Can you explain then what Kleinfelter Syndrome is and what causes it? Yes, certainly. Uh, Kleinfelter Syndrome is a genetic condition that affects reportedly one in 600 men. But one of the problems with it, one of the difficulties, is that many go undiagnosed. So there's certain traits and characteristics that a Kleinfelter's man may have, uh, but often people aren't diagnosed till later in life. In fact, I myself was diagnosed in my late th- mid to late 30s uh, during fertility investigations. So sometimes they're diagnosed at a younger age, depending on either during development, there's been developmental needs, or sometimes even at the stage of pregnancy. It's basically a condition that's caused when the sperm and egg meet, and it results in the individual having double XY chromosome. So the impact this can have upon an individual can vary very broadly. One thing that's really important to highlight about the condition is it has a broad spectrum. So some patients will have profound impact, and others it can be quite mild. And I think sometimes it's difficult for people to understand that because it's easy to say that my son has Kleinfelter syndrome or my child has double XY. And that easily then perhaps gets to mind thinking that, for example, if you've heard another child has learning difficulties, it's made an assumption that all children with KS will have learning difficulties. But that's not actually the case. Uh, the spectrum is very, very broad. A lot of different ways it can affect you which I want to talk about in a moment, because I just want to talk about your diagnosis then and just understand a bit about how it kind of presented itself. My ex-wife and I, we're no longer married, but um, we were trying for a baby round about the age of probably 34, I'd say. Uh, She'd been very career-minded and, you know, we waited, we let let it a bit late and then started trying in our sort of early to mid-30s. So after a period of trying, it was clearly not having success, and we spoke to our GP about it and went down the referral route. When I was first diagnosed with Kleinfelter syndrome, uh, obviously it came as a bit of a shock, um, as I'm sure anyone diagnosed with the syndrome, it's a bit of a shock, and of course a bit of an unclear information. It wasn't really clear what it was I actually had. One of the big problems with Kleinfelter syndrome is that it's not very well known, uh, even within the medical profession, and that's one of the key aims of the charity is to increase awareness not only within the public but also with the medics too. So I was informed that I had this condition and I was informed rather bluntly that I'd be infertile. Uh, that's a very common feedback we get from our patients. Not only have they been informed they've got this mysterious condition no one's ever heard of but they're not going to be able to father children as well. And the way this information is communicated is often very very blunt. I've got a friend, I've got lots of friends through the charity and th- through the organisation but He's very similar to me. He's the same age as me. We were diagnosed within a few months of each other. And he, too, had a very blunt letter that just confirmed his diagnosis and confirmed he wouldn't be able to father children. So the the way it's told is often a big shock. Uh, And for me, uh, we tried to deal with this information and we tried to go through the appropriate stages. But um, unfortunately, that was unsuccessful. 
And unfortunately, this caused the breakdown of my marriage. The fact that you couldn't have a have a child with your with your wife. So I'm sure you went through fertility treatment, did you? And it didn't work. We started to, but we yeah. found it quite difficult because. It was at a time where uh, donors of sperm had to start identifying themselves. So it was round about that time that, as a result of that news, uh, there were less donors available. Or certainly yep. that's what we were told. So we tried to go to the European Sperm Donor Centre, which is online, and we were trying very hard to access. But the problem was my ex-wife wanted the child to look like me. She wanted it to be a secret. And trying to find a donor that looked like me, I'm basically tall, dark, half Indian, a very large uh, stature, which is common in KS people. Um, because she had a certain criteria to meet, we couldn't find a donor that, that met my criteria. Uh, you know, of course, other people may be more flexible and open to just sure. being happy to have a donor, but she was quite distinct and specific because she didn't want anyone to know. And I, I do recognise that that's unsustainable. And, you know, to anyone that is a parent of a donor child, that's a challenging uh, matter that needs to be discussed but hiding it entirely may not be the best answer. Now you've touched on how KS affects general health you talked about your stature let's talk a little bit about that I mean obviously you've had to deal with a massive blow in in your personal life not only with the syndrome but the breakdown of your marriage you've got this diagnosis now was it answering some questions about maybe how you were feeling your appearance that you'd wondered about I mean are other members of your family at all? Well that's a really interesting point you make there because for me, yes, I was always the tall one of the family. So my dad's about 5'11", my mum's about 5'7", my sister's about 5'7". We've got one uncle, my dad's brother, who was... I always thought he was tall, but when I met him, he's actually not that tall. So yes, I, I was the unusual tall one of the family. And I've got a photograph of when I was about 15 of my mum and my sister and myself in the middle. And I just looked like this enormous, tall individual that, you know, you do wonder how on earth that could be. So that, that for me was, oh, right, that explains it. Because in the networks that I run, I we, we talk about all sorts of things. And a question did come up, how tall is everyone? And out of about 150 people, uh, most were over six foot. I'm one of the tall ones. I'm six foot four. But I say that slightly tongue in cheek because most are six two or six three. Right. There are some even taller. There's a guy that's six ten. Uh, but most of them are around six four. So, so, you know, that is quite an interesting finding. But one thing I do find with other patients that I can't relate to myself is that when they were diagnosed and they were told of some of the symptoms, people often say, ah, oh, that explains such and such, and that's why this, and that's why that, and I understand it now. But for me personally, I didn't have much of that. I do find sometimes when I'm in a group of males, pals at work or perhaps a social setting, I do feel sometimes like I struggle to fit in, and I can't really put my finger on why that is. And now I do recognise that's part of Kleinfelter syndrome. So for me, that's a kind of minor input. But certain other people have come up with, you know, things like learning difficulties and um, certain other characteristics that knowing they have the diagnosis has, has made it really clear to understand why they've been like that. And just talking about the physical appearance, I mean, I've I've seen things like breast development, sparse body and facial hair, lack of muscle bulk and tone. So it could just seem like the way you are. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because the, the, the points that you've just listed are all appropriate and correct on some patients, but not mm. all. Online, there's a great deal of historic information that's really inaccurate. And it's quite depressing sometimes that... People make assumptions based upon what they've read, which is understandable, which isn't always true. So, for example, the breast development, I mean, that to a man is quite a, a scary, shocking thing. But actually, 
breast development, I'm not sure if that's the best phrase. I mean, yes, it, it is a form of breast development, but gynecomastia is normally what we might call as a bit of fatty breast tissue. I mean, a phrase that nobody likes is moobs, but that's yeah. a phrase that, you know, it's used commonly in culture. Yeah. Uh, so rather than having, you know, substantial breasts, they just tend to have a bit of extra tissue in the breast area. But what, it could just seem like they're overweight. Yeah, I mean, any patient that goes for the surgery normally gets immediately told lose weight before we can consider surgery some of the thinner guys have had surgery and there's mixed views about mentally and emotionally what impact that may have surgery Um, for what removal of the breast tissue okay yep so so i sought my local nhs trust because my my doctor implied i might be able to access it but of course this is the lack of joined up nature within the nhs when I actually went for the appointment, firstly, I got rather brusquely dismissed from the waiting room because it was a breast care centre for women. And the receptionist, well, it's actually the nurse, made the assumption that I was in the wrong department. It was actually oh. I was in the right department. How uncomfortable. Oh, it was awful. I mean, I, I've written um, an article that appeared in the Fertility magazine uh, last winter. And I'll provide you with a link to add to this uh, podcast sure. in which describes that and numerous other bad experiences I've had in the hands of uh, healthcare professionals. I was just going to ask about the emotional side. You talked about maybe feeling a bit um, uncomfortable in certain situations and some of the symptoms, especially that have been presented as far as children are concerned, might be behavioural aspects, speech and language disorders, difficulty with learning or having a short attention span. Are they things that you've experienced as an adult? Because I'm I'm interested to talk a bit about early diagnosis. Well, I'll tell you something I find really quite peculiar. And again, this underlines the broadness of the spectrum. I deal with a lot of parents who describe a lot of the symptoms you're talking about and how it's difficult to get the correct schooling and to help the young people through education when, you know, dare I say it, to look at, they don't appear to have any obvious symptoms, but of course they have got a condition that may not be very clear. But for me personally, the year I was diagnosed, I was also doing my studies. I did an MBA part-time as my first degree. Now, you know, if I've got learning difficulties, um, I don't think I have got, maybe mildly, but certainly not on a profound nature. I, I think mine are no different than any other human being, you know, just the challenge of studying you know the fact that I was doing my MBA at the time of my diagnosis kind of almost quashes any rumor that I could have learning disabilities yeah but then having said that there are others on the other end of the spectrum that have massive challenges in their education well in my uh, 100th episode with Dr Kevin McElhaney about the work he's doing educating kind of medics about issues affecting male fertility and he I know works with you and helps raise awareness of the, the KS he talks about a, a dad who had said to him that if he'd have known he would have been easier on his son when he'd had kind of bad mm, school reports mm, mm. and that's sad to hear and and I suppose having that understanding of the effects of KS can 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 help with future problems if there's a not a label because we have too many labels don't we as far children are concerned but just mm. more awareness of, of what could be going on I mean, that's really interesting and, and i noted that in the previous podcast and as you say we do a lot of work closer with kevin in fact he's a great supporter of the kleinfeld syndrome and we, you know we must stress how grateful we are for his help and interest in what we do but this point about uh, parents firstly many parents when their children are diagnosed they feel a sense of guilt and they question what could they have done to prevent it happening and the fact is there's nothing you can do to prevent it happening But the other point is that there are, within our network, some KS men who don't get on with their dads. And maybe dad doesn't know, or maybe dad does know, or maybe dad is not really, you know, completely au fait with understanding the condition. 
there is quite a lot of conflict. And I was really interested in that case he described, because in that case, the dad was saying, if I'd known, I'd have done something about it. But I think maybe it's the alpha male isn't very good at dealing with emotional things and may struggle to understand what their young person's going through. So there's the whole psychological effect. There's physical symptoms and then how they're going to present. There's the relationships that are going to be affected. And then you mentioned about the effect it had on your fertility. So let's talk about infertility and how KS affects infertility. Is it fair to assume that if you've been diagnosed, then you are going to struggle to to father a child? Absolutely. It's really interesting that when you talk to medical professionals, particularly those that are in the commercial world of infertility, Anyone that's going through infertility investigations or IVF or any other systems will know that some of these organisations, I feel, are very focused on profit and on delivering a service and less on the emotional needs of the patient. For example, Kleinfelter syndrome is a non-obstructive sperm disorder. You know, what that means is that it's not that there's a blockage in the tube, it's that they may not have sufficient sperm within their ejaculate that's viable to be able to form a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So if you ask some of these private clinics, what's the likelihood of sperm retrieval being successful? Some of them come out with the most extraordinary uh, suggestions on what percentage of success likelihood they'll be. Whereas actually, if you talk to any endocrinologist, they come out with a totally different answer. So I've got a bit of a work in progress at the moment, because I can't, nobody's really very willing to say exactly what the chances are. I know from my own experience and the experience of various uh, people I network with, once you get above the age of mid-twenties, the likelihood of successful sperm retrieval is pretty slim. But the trouble with that is, and anyone in fertility will know this, if there's the slightest glimmer of hope, people will go for it. Yes. So I know a patient who's somewhere in his 30s. He's recently gone through the whole process. It's not straightforward. It involves stopping the testosterone that we all take, which is required to boost uh, that's a condition of Kleinfelter's. We, we have low testosterone, hence the no shaving and such like. Um, so he had to stop his testosterone. He had to take some additional drugs that may have had a not-so-positive impact. Then he's gone through the, the uh, process, which is called microtease, only then to find it was unsuccessful. But if you ask these clinics, they come out with different answers. And another peculiarity is that in England, we're saying one thing. In the States, they're saying it completely the opposite way around. So I spoke to someone in the States quite recently via Facebook, and he's told me that he's going through microtease even though he's 36 years old, and he's got the same uh, type line felt as I have. It's 47XXY. There's different variations of it. I know it's highly unlikely that that will be successful based upon the information available in the UK. Only his doctors told him it's very likely to be successful. I feel that this commercial interest that people have... I don't know his doctor, and I I know nothing about this guy other than he's very knowledgeable in the process and he's written lots of books about it so clearly you know it's a lot more than I do but based upon the information and feedback we get from people it's difficult it, it's a difficult conversation to have don't bother the chances are low well actually there's a slight glimmer of hope so I'm going to have a go more from Raj in just a moment after we hear from my sponsors the fertility podcast is supported by OvuSense if you're trying to monitor your cycle and finding it overwhelming OvuSense is the only ovulation monitor on the market that is a class 2 medical device It has a vaginal sensor and app and fits like a tampon, so it's really easy to use and comfortable to wear. Now, you use it at night while you sleep, and then in the morning, you simply remove, wash it, and download your data to see your cycle pattern. Now, OvuSense has proven comfortable for women in over 10,000 cycles of use. 
and can predict ovulation up to a day in advance and can confirm it with 99% accuracy. To find out more, visit ovisense.com. The Fertility Podcast is also supported by IVF Matters, the UK's first online fertility clinic where you can order tests delivered to your door, have scans at multiple locations and speak to consultants in the comfort of your own home. It's a truly unique way to experience your fertility journey and you can find out more at ivfmatters.co.uk. Now, I know how daunting it is finding out information about fertility issues, so I wanted to tell you about The Fertility Show. It's on the 4th and 5th of November at London's Olympia and is open to anyone wanting to start or extend their family. You can meet experts face-to-face at the exhibition or attend one of the brilliant seminars by a leading fertility specialist. Visit thefertilityshow.co.uk for more information. That's, I think, one of the biggest issues with anybody in fertility treatment is that you don't want any regrets, do you? And so many people do when they've made the decision to stop or to to go down a, a different route. So it's a really hard one to try and work out the best That's way to go. Microtease is the most recent advancement. And just explain, because that's getting, that's kind of sperm retrieval, isn't it? Yeah, that's sperm retrieval, where my understanding is they take a cross-section of the testicle, because if you imagine you may have peaks and troughs, so rather than the former version, which was a biopsy, which I had, so I had a biopsy that was negative, the microtease is a more detailed biopsy, where they may be able to recover some viable sperm. But the important thing about microtees is that if viable sperm is recovered, rather than freezing it, bearing in mind it's likely to be very vulnerable anyway, ideally the female partner will be in ovulation in a room next door where they'll basically take the sperm and immediately make use of it, different perhaps to other treatments. The likelihood of it being successful, there's so many variables against it being successful that it makes it an even bigger risk. Okay, I mean, this is fascinating. And I, and I hope that just by the points that you've made, if anybody's listening and thinking it might apply to them, just just knowing that I think you can question the stats that you're given when you're entering into treatment is, is, is so important for anybody on a fertility journey, because we do kind of hang on to anything that the experts say. Really, and that's one of the points of this podcast is to educate and give people that empowerment to know that they can challenge, you know, what they're told, even if it is a medical professional. Because, like you've just said, you've got two different countries doing different mm. things. Mm, absolutely. So you mentioned XXY, and I know that you've written about the difference of XXY and KS. Can you just explain that to me? Yes. Some people with double XY chromosomes may not relate directly to being male. So double XY chromosomes, of course, us males with it, have an extra female X chromosome. And this is where the conversation to a complete layman can get a little bit messy because this is the main reason why many KS aren't open and public about their diagnosis. So I am because I felt that somebody needs to be, otherwise you know, we'll never make any progress with education. But if you Google double XY, it can come up with negative things that aren't so good for the male. For example, um, rumours that they may have female genitals, that they may be hermaphrodites, that they may have female characteristics, that they may have breast tissue, which we now know from our previous discussion isn't quite as severe as it may sound. But this thing can lead to people making terrible assumptions, and that's why many people at work won't be... Uh, open with their diagnosis because they're fearful of you know bullying and um, mm. bullying is probably a, a light version you know, fearful of people being very negative about it 
But the fact is, there is a percentage of people with double XY who don't um, connect with necessarily being male. So some of them identify more as female, and some of them identify as being what's described as non-binary. Mm. And non-binary is a term, an easy example is instead of saying black and white, it's grey, it's mm. somewhere in the middle. I mean, obviously a non-binary person probably wouldn't be overjoyed by my description, but it's a sort of easy layman's version of understanding what we're describing here. So a non-binary person may choose to take oestrogen instead of testosterone, um, because that may be better for their their well-being. It has to be said that the taking of oestrogen isn't necessarily to do with sexual function or sexual characteristics. It does or can have a very positive impact upon mental health and well-being. So I do know of a patient who is taking oestrogen, and they themselves have said in the, in the course of a few months that they're feeling much clearer in the mind, they're feeling much more positive about the future. They're not trying to be a woman, they don't want to be a woman, but they also don't want to be a man. Uh, they're somewhere in the middle. The other scenario is where someone might identify as being more female, and that's where somebody that may have been identified as male at birth may now choose to be female. A common way of describing that type of arrangement would be a trans person, mm. but it's quite important to recognise that they may not see themselves as trans because... They were diagnosed and identified as male at birth by a doctor, not by themselves. So if they've been brought up as male, but they identify as more being female, when they transfer to being female, it may be that they've believed they were female. Believe isn't the right word, but maybe that they felt female right from the word go. Mm. It's a lot to kind of get your head around when it's so misunderstood by, I suppose, the medical profession. But it's a it's a world that is becoming more and more spoken about, and and I think accepted now. Would you agree? Well, I think so, but I think that's because I'm immersed in the world of Klinefelter syndrome. Mm. I think from an outsider's viewpoint, and that includes the medics. I mean, we have patients who say that their doctors never had another Klinefelter's patient. I mean, they probably have, but they've not been diagnosed. And therefore, we do hear some very peculiar responses to the, to the treatment of people, or, or the lack of treatment in some cases. And tell so, me the numbers yes. again. We're talking about one in 600 live male births, yes, aren't live we? live births, that's right. So 75% are undiagnosed. And on the Facebook pages I run, uh, every now and then, well, sometimes it's virtually every week, new people are joining us who've recently been diagnosed. Um some of them were diagnosed at a young age but because support and help was very lacking they've kind of just buried it the Kleinfelter Syndrome Association charity, the KSA has actually been around for nearly 27 years now really? it was set up by parents and they have done a fantastic job at creating a platform and a place of safety for people with the condition and parents to come and learn more about it but other than that there's very little support available there are NHS fact sheets so there is information online but some of those contain information that isn't entirely correct well let's talk about where people can kind of access you because you've got a, a, a really helpful website with lots of downloads uh, that people can access and I know that you do events all around the UK and you have conferences but people have different preferences on how they might like to contact us so first of all we've got a website and the website contains lots of good information. On the website is a contact us page and there's a national helpline that people can phone. It's really important to recognise the charities run by volunteers in their own time. So, you know, one needs to be mindful of that. 
Um, so they can telephone the National Helpline. They can also contact, contact us via email. So we've got some different email addresses. One of them I respond to. Fine. And then on top of that, we've got a really good Facebook network. Now, I've just said really good. Uh, I set it up, but I, I think it's really good. The feedback we get from the users is that it's really good. Um, so one thing that I've found through observing the use of Facebook is that if you group everyone in the same group, so what I mean by that is you have parents, people with Klinefelter syndrome that are adults, uh, brothers, sisters, and so on, sometimes the conversations can be quite heated over certain topics, and you can have a little bit of conflict sometimes. So to try and improve the way people communicate, I set up a load of independent groups. So for example, there's a group for men with Klinefelter syndrome, of course, that does exclude the double XY people that may not identify as male. So there's a group for them as well. There's also a group for wives, girlfriends, and partners. There's a group for mums and some dads of double XY and triple XY. So these are all secret groups. Now, I've said they're secret and I've just told you about them. But the reason they're secret is to stop people from accessing them who may not be genuine. You yeah. might ask who would do that. Well, one of the things about the condition is people are very private about their diagnosis. So we need to make sure that the people that are in the groups are actually genuine patients or genuine parents. And to achieve that, I've got a, a method of uh, basically talking to people and establishing their needs. So the men with Klinefelter syndrome group has over 140 members. They're mainly in the UK, but there are some international members. We've got people in Brazil. We've got people in India. There's one or two in the Philippines. Uh, because access for them is, or access to information is sometimes challenging. So within that group, uh, we, I basically invite people in, uh, they join up, we have a chat, and then it's a place where they can talk about things that are important to them. Uh, Kevin, who you mentioned earlier, has picked up on this as well, that a peer group is actually proving to be highly effective, and many of our members are saying that they're finding it more effective than actually speaking to medical professionals. Okay. Um, I've done a little survey and I've sort of asked people for feedback and the general feel, I mean, I won't read you out every answer, but the general feel is that, you know, this group is a place where I can talk about things that I wouldn't necessarily talk to my GP or my endocrinologist about. It's a place where I can bounce ideas off other people. I find out I'm not the only one. I mean, if I just read one, undoubtedly this group has been more helpful in my understanding and coping with KS than any information or advice from professionals so far. It's allowed me to hopefully help others by sharing some of these new found coping strategies. And, and there's numerous other people that have said mm. similar things. But that's amazing, isn't it? To know that at least you know you're there. And that's the point, that's the brilliance of Facebook, how far reaching it is. Absolutely. The parents group, um, there's about 125 members. And then their girlfriends, you know, there, there's more other groups. I mean, I mentioned the Philippines. It's really interesting. Actually. A few people in the Philippines felt they had double XY, but they can't be diagnosed. Access to diagnosis is expensive and difficult. So I created a Facebook chat group for them, and I just added people as and when they popped up. And they, one of the guys actually took it over, you know, I got, with my blessing. He set up his own Facebook group, and he wrote me this long, thankful message on how I haven't really saved them, but I've saved them in terms of having a, a place they can meet and talk. Yeah. So Facebook, is some, some people, when I connect with them, they say, oh, well, I'm not on Facebook, I'm not interested in that, it's a waste of time. Because Facebook has different uses for different people. Sure. This is purely about connecting with like-minded people with, with similar needs. 
Well, Raj, it's been really interesting just hearing about the work you're doing. Thank you for persevering with it and, and doing what you do. And we'll put all the links to how people can um, get in touch with you and, and join the Facebook group. And what would be any advice that you could offer to anybody listening who might have identified with some of the things that we've talked about? I'd encourage them to get in touch with the Kleinfelter Syndrome Association. You can either send an email or another way in is to send a message to the Facebook page, which will be picked up by myself or one other, and we can then have a conversation with you. I'm totally open to talking to people, whether that be on the phone or whether that be by electronic means. You mentioned briefly, and I can just add, we hold the socials. I do a lot of swimming, open water swimming, and I swim a lot in the, in the West Country. So I've held three down there. Well, I just meet up with other people in the condition and we have a chat. Uh, we also hold them all over the country. Uh, so that's, for anyone that's a bit uncertain, that's a good way of kind of entering our world. It, it's, they're informal. It's just a meet and a drink. You'll make them swim in open water? Are you mad? No, no. <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I don't make them, but we've got a triathlete who swims with me. I mean, that's the funny thing. KS is associated with people that may not have sporting and fit abilities. That's yeah. complete nonsense. There's lots of us that do. You know, that's something you find out through the groups. But I wanted to mention, and I know you'll put a link to this, uh, the, the article in the Fertility Network magazine, that's a really good way of learning more about Kleinfelter syndrome. Great. And after it was published, somebody contacted me and said that they were with their husband in um, a medical centre waiting for their appointment, and they saw it on the table, and they read about it, and they approached us through that medium. And I'm delighted by that. That made that article so worthwhile. So yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully, if anybody listening here identifies as well, then they will know to get in touch with you because all we can do with all of these issues that affect especially our fertility is talk about them and, and raise awareness of them. So, Raj, again, thank you. It's been fascinating and um, good luck with it all. And I hope we speak Lovely. again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to us and uh, engaging with us. It's really helpful. Thanks, Raj. Okay, bye. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. If anything that Raj has said relates to you and your situation, please do visit the show notes because all of the articles that Raj mentioned and his information will be on there. And the details are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash KS. Now, I've got a new look website. I'd be really keen to hear what you think. Uh, just email me natalie at thefertilitypodcast.com. All the social media links are there. I'm not going to go into them because I really need to stop talking now. So hopefully I will sound normal again by my next episode. Until the next time. Mm-hmm.